The idea for this panel came out of the transition team where one of our members, Carl Ill, said it would be fantastic to have all of the preachers in the room at the same time talking about church and what matters about church and sort of the future that we see in the church. So that is how this concept began, and we are delighted that Richard and Kathleen and M are able to join Caroline and myself this morning um, for this panel. We have incorporated in some of the questions that you all contributed in the connection cards and over email in the last couple of weeks. Um, and we are gonna start out by asking each person in the panel to share a little bit about what it is about FCC that made you want to be involved, either as a member or on staff or part of this preaching team. Um, so I'm, um, um, I've been here almost exactly seven years, a little over. Um, I started in Cal in, at FCC when I moved to Kalamazoo for college. Um, I came to church my first Sunday in Kalamazoo, um, which happened to be homecoming Sunday with the big potluck. Um, and I left, I think, having been introduced to about half of the church, um, <laughs> and I think about enough leftovers to last about a month. Um, and throughout that first day, and I think throughout the time since, um, the love that exists in FCC has definitely been what has kept me here. Um, it's by far one of the biggest reasons that I stayed in Kalamazoo after graduating. Um, and it's just been my whole life, basically. It's the reason I do as many things as I do here. Um, and for me, it's the progressive theology and the exuberant worship. I'm just really inspired by that each and every time that I'm here. Oh, and I'm Kathleen. <laughs> I'm Richard Benink. Um, when my wife and I moved back to Kalamazoo area uh, five years ago, uh, we had some pretty specific things we were looking for in terms of a church. Um, we wanted preaching that was challenging and forward-thinking. We wanted music and, and worship that, was of, uh, that offered a variety and not just one particular style of music. And we wanted a congregation that was fairly liberal and progressive. Um, I had a list of about three churches that we were going to check out. And the first one was First Congregational. And we never went anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I came back to First Congregational Church when we moved here uh, eight years ago. And uh, I had joined this church back in the late 80s when I first um, landed in Kalamazoo to work at Kalamazoo College. So even though I had, from there, worked at Portage UCC, when I came back to Kalamazoo, I knew that this is where I wanted to be, just because, again, of the progressive theology, of the music. But what has kept me here is the ways that this congregation truly doesn't just say its mission, it lives its mission. It really works its mission and continues to try to make that 
happen again and again and again, and in new ways, like this panel of preachers. Um, so I said yes to this because it meant I didn't have to preach every Sunday. So <laughs> I was grateful for that. Um, I moved to Kalamazoo about eight years ago, nine years ago, and um, two years into our time here, I was mostly a stay-at-home mom and I had part-time work at the Presbytery of Lake Michigan. Um, and I knew about this church because my husband and I would go to Bronson Park things. Anytime all the Bronson Park churches did things together, we would attend those. We lived close to downtown. It was easy to pop in. And it was clear from those gatherings that this church had a really unique spirit. And like Caroline said, was really focused on actually living out what it believes um, in a clear sense of mission. And so when a position opened up um, at this church, I jumped at the opportunity to help with the youth. So we wanted to focus today on the whole idea of gratitude, following the scripture reading about the folk, the one who came back to say thank you to Jesus. And we wondered if you would share what some individual practices of gratitude are that are meaningful to you. Um, and a congregation member added to that question, how do you get family or extended family to practice gratitude and hope? So not just for yourself, but for whatever uh, groups you may be part of uh, in a smaller sense there. Um, I will say one of my practices of gratitude is, um, is just looking out at the world. And I love getting up in the morning, oddly enough, to let the dogs out. And what I see each morning is often where the moon is. And to look at that in the sky and to think about how small I am and how big the world is and what it means to be part of something where that moon is visible across the globe and what that means to be, again, part of something so much bigger than I am. Um, so it helps me to start the day in gratitude by feeling both small and blessed by what is so large that I'm part of. Um, my kids aren't home any longer, but we used to do a thing at the dining table where we'd say, all right, tonight, What's your rose? What's your thorn? What's your stem? And so we'd practice saying what we are grateful for, what a rose was, what was blooming in our lives, what was a thorn, what wasn't so great about the day, but also what was the stem? What, uh, where do you see growth? Where do you see something that is moving? And that's been a helpful practice. Even when the kids come back home now, they're adults and gone, but they come home and we do that once in a while too. We had a, a practice at our house uh, before the evening meal. Not every night, maybe not even more than once a week, but instead of a prayer before a blessing of the food, we would just say, I would, this is when the kids were small, I would say, what is the most important attitude you can have in life? And the answer was gratitude. And it got to the point where I would, or dad, instead of saying, let's pray, dad would say, hey, kids, what is? And they'd say, gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, that was that was a, a little thing, and I'm not sure. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure how we can teach that other than model it. I think kids kids watch what mom and dad do, and if if you, if parents want their kids to have a light, uh, an attitude of gratitude, you've got to show that yourself. Um, I, I will say that my factory setting is hopefulness, and this pandemic has really put that to the test. Um, a number of personal losses related to pandemic and just, you know, just the unbelievable nature of, of so much that's happening in the world, man, that has felt tested. Um, and... I still, um, like you, Caroline, when I walk my dog and what my head is full of is all of the things that are not going right or that are challenging, and I remind myself as I watch my dog so happily walking in front of me, that's joy. That dog in front of me, that's joy. And then that helps me find my way back to all of the things, like the air in my lungs, the legs that are carrying me. Um, from the most basic things to, you know, more abstract things that I'm grateful for. Um, and as far as family, I think that's true, like you said, Richard, that modeling that is really important. But I have a college-age daughter who um, tends to see the shadow side of nearly everything. And um, one thing lately that I've been encouraging her to do, and she's been trying it with, I think, a little bit of success, is... The first thing she does in the morning before she picks up her phone, before she thinks about all of the tasks that she has to complete, start with one thing. Just find one thing you're grateful for, even if it's just that you got to sleep in a warm bed last night. Um, and I do think that those little tiny things that we tend to overlook can lead us to a, a larger kind of gratitude. Um, I think a big practice for me of gratitude is, um, especially in my life, gift giving. Um, a lot of my friends have now, we're all graduated, we're all over the country, um, we have two moving to Canada, um, actually on Tuesday, as soon as their mini honeymoon is done. Mm. So um, we don't get to see each other very often, and thankfully someone invented the post office. So I can find ways to touch their lives every day. Um, when I can, even if I'm not next to them. Um, and it means that I think also because of that, I'm always, every time I'm shopping, every time I'm doing anything, even just scrolling through Facebook or something like that, I'm always thinking about the people I love because I see something and I'm like, oh, this person would like this or this person would like that. And I can reach out and, and touch them with it and be constantly thinking of what they're needing in their life, what they're enjoying in their life. Um, I think in terms of, of wider family, I don't have kids, so I have fewer to influence. Um, but in terms at least of being influenced, I think my dad has done a lot, um, not necessarily explicitly, but we've been actually building robots for a couple of years now. Um, and he's sort of always had this practice of, well, maybe, mm. you know, let's, let's try. And sort of the idea of, never saying no at first and always going, you know, what can we try to do first? What, 
ways can we try to make this happen? Um, and I think that is an important lesson, not just in robot building, but mm -hmm. in a lot of things. So this next question, I'm gonna encourage both Kathleen and M to weigh in on um, because of your stage of life and also vocation. Um, how do you think we can share our faith with younger adults, many of whom have been turned off by what they see as a culture of hypocrisy in the church? I think you're directing that at me because of the work I do on campus with college students. Um, and I think it's a legitimate question. Um, and I was thinking about this question earlier, and my mentor and former colleague used to say that Jesus told a story, and the people who heard the story loved it so much that they built an institution around it. Hmm. And we've got to get back to the story. And I think that that is, um, students, that, this story is a captivating story. People want to hear it. Students want to hear it. When it gets wrapped up in, not this institution necessarily, but institutions in general, um, that sort of fail to allow that radical inclusivity um, to shine through, I think that's where the disconnect happens. And so removing that artifice and um, just being radical inclusivity, naming that institutions are not always um, their best selves, and um, I think also embodying that sense of faith personally in a way that's kind of unapologetic um, but open, I think, is been helpful for me. Um, I think a big thing also is, is action and finding ways to take the church outside of the church building um, and into what you're doing every day. Um, it's something that my seminary is definitely shifting towards focusing heavily on, um, especially as younger and gender generations come through. Um, I think a lot of people look at the the gorgeous, beautiful buildings, um, but don't see the work that's being done outside of it, um, and don't recognize how much the church does in any given day, um, especially ones that aren't Sunday. One of the things that we have been um, paying attention to as we've been doing the Jesus and John Wayne study um, is talking about how other faith communities have shaped us over time, both for good and for ill, um, and how that's challenged us. Um, but I'm wondering for, for each of us, perhaps, how, um, how the different faith communities that we have been part of, how the different institutions even that we've been part of over time, even if we have left them behind, continue to shape us in ways that are positive um, and, and give us gifts that we are grateful for and can share. Um, and I, I think I wanna say that the institution I'm thinking of right now is, <clears throat> is my, my family, my parents, um, who were really quite strict in a lot of ways and I didn't always appreciate it at the time, but um, recognizing that their sense of order was a way for them to acknowledge that there was hope and progress in the world, that, that the order that they had grown up with gave them a sense of meaning that they wanted to share with us. 
And so it helps me to recognize that, um, that the way I find meaning might not be the same way anybody else in this room finds meaning, but that I have something to learn from that, from you, from each other, and that maybe you have something to learn from me too, that our differences, the ways that we are unique, are actually um, a blessing and give us hope in a lot of ways. Anybody else want to? I'm uh, obviously near the end of my any, any active ministry and pushing 80. Um, so I'm not, I think I have a, a perspective that goes way back. <laughs> my, my parents, one was from the south side of Kalamazoo and the other was from the north side of Kalamazoo. And for those of you that know Kalamazoo in 1940 when they got married, that was essentially Christian reform on the north side and reformed on the south side. <laughs> and, uh, and somehow, I don't know how they got connected because uh, in 1940, that was a mixed marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I think back about uh, on, on their coming together, which seems like a little thing <laughs> from this perspective 80 years later, um, I think that was a, that set, set a model for me. There was a lot about that tradition that I find uh, restrictive, negative, um, controlling, um, all kinds of things that I have to fight against because it's still a part of me. Um, but I, I, I think that moving out of that tradition into one more like the UCC, uh, I know what I don't. I know what I don't want to be like. Um, that was part of the problem with with those traditions. We always knew why we were not like the Baptists and the Catholics and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. We knew, what, we knew where they were wrong. We never knew why, what, we were, what we were and why we were different. We could always, we could always say why it was why, like the whole infant baptism thing. Why, you know, that was such an important issue was. Um, I don't think it is anymore, but anyway. I, I think when I, when I went to seminary and began to be more open to other traditions, um, there are things about that rigidity that I think I can see some positives in, but m mostly it, it continues to be a, a negative thing. And uh, I don't know that that'll ever leave me. That's where I need to be challenged by by the people I associate with to 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 not to not dwell on that negativity. But that's a toughie. Yeah. I'm actually gonna present our final question now. Um, in a sentence or so, could you share one thing 
that gives you hope for the church? Just because it's what's most immediately on my mind, on Tuesday on National Coming Out Day, I'll be standing at the flagpole um, with some other folks handing out candy to students. And on that, those pieces of candy, it will say, God loves you just as you are. Happy National Coming Out Day. That gives me hope. Mm. I think following along similar lines, um, the fact that the one of our rainbow flag uh, signs has been on the back of the church for, I think, several years now. And we put it up for Pride Sunday, and it has never been taken down. I'll um, share that one of the things that gives me hope is that people keep going to seminary <laughs> and, and keep becoming pastors in spite of the fact that there's been decline in the church. And it's very clear that the kind of leadership that's required in churches is the leadership that leads to transformation. Um, it just gives me a lot of hope that there continue to be people who want to do that work and feel called to do that work. Um, yeah. I would say what gives me hope is that um, through the devastations of the pandemic, we keep learning that there are other ways to reach people and that we've been willing to do it. Um, and, and not just this we, but, but the larger we. And it's been a struggle, it's been a challenge everywhere. And the, the loss of clergy over this time has been significant. But there have been gains in terms of that ability to try new things um, and to keep, keep being willing to move beyond what we thought we knew or what we thought had to be the case. Um, that gives me hope because that feels like the spirit moving in a lot of ways. So, Richard, do you want to share something? No, I'll pass on. <laughs> we want to say thank you to you and um, also to Liz and to Jeremy who couldn't be here today. Um, and speaking of the pandemic, one of the things that I was um, involved in early on that some of you are aware of and some of you contributed to was making masks that I just broadcast around the world. So I had a lot of scraps at the end of that um, heavy sewing time. And as we decided that we wanted to gather a panel of preachers, I realized there would be some good use for some of those scraps. And so we want to say thank you to each of you in this green and growing season by offering you, this is the stole that I made for myself from some of those scraps, but these are for you. Thank you. This is a season of Pentecost. It's also called ordinary time, although it's been anything but ordinary these days. Um, this color for ordinary time 
and the season of Pentecost is green. And so all these green scraps came together to make something pretty amazing that we could pull this together, I think. And then there's also um, quilted vines on there to show that this is also a season of growth. And one of the things we've been talking about in the transition team is even in the midst of all that has been challenging, we have truly found this to be a season of growth. And so we want to say thank you for contributing to that. Yeah, thank thanks. You.